Amen. Thank you, Paxton, Angie, and team. Good morning. How are you? Look, this is a people in rhythm, man. People are up. They're awake. Um, Colossians chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. If you'll grab your Bibles and turn there. Colossians 2. We're going to be looking at a few verses uh, in chapter 2 this morning, specifically verses 6 through 10 is where we're going to be together this morning. Um, We're going to save our time for corporate prayer uh, toward the end of the service this morning as we get to celebrate communion uh, together. Colossians 2 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, And before we get there, I want to share with you a little story uh, about advertising in American history. Um, This story dates back to September 12th of 1957. And this gentleman named uh, James Vickery calls this press conference on September 12th to announce this stunning revelation that he's had. He's kind of conducted this experiment in movie theaters, and he wants to tell the public what he's done. Over the course of six weeks during the preceding summer, he arranged to have these slogans, specifically two slogans, one that said, eat popcorn, and the other that said, drink Coca-Cola, flash for three milliseconds. So very briefly, three milliseconds, but that happened every five seconds onto this movie screen in this movie theater in Fort Lee, New Jersey. So all these people watched this movie entitled Picnic, and every five seconds, there was this three-millisecond flash of eat popcorn and drink Coca-Cola. He argued that the messages were too fast for filmgoers to read them. So he said, hey, they're not seeing, they're not really reading these messages, but they are salient enough to register with them subconsciously. As proof, he presented data indicating that the messages had increased soda sales at the theater by 18% and popcorn sales by 58%. And if you think I didn't think about doing that with giving this morning before the offer, kidding, this joke. <laughs> Look, this tactic, what happened, it was outlawed. You can imagine why. There's some serious ethical concerns here. And the public was enraged when they found out about this. Think about it, preying on the minds of people who are viewing this. And as a, result, we don't, as a result, we don't see things like this anymore. But I do think what you and I see in myriad places from an advertising or commercial type context, it's more direct, it's not subconscious, but it's ultimately just as persuasive. Maybe a little simpler, but there's still a complexity to it. And here's what I think it looks like. You need it. You need it. You can't live without it. If you don't have it, you're missing out. That is often what's communicated to us by the world that we live in, on our televisions, on our computers, in our conversations with others, and even in the quiet moments that we spend alone. We have these thoughts. I don't have enough. I feel empty, or I feel like I'm missing something. If only I had that, then I would be full, then I would be complete. In the words of our friend Jerry Wilson, he describes the scenario in the Garden of Eden in much the same way. He says, if you recall, this is the very tact that Satan took in the Garden with Eve. In so many words, he said, look, why would God make you with the capacity for godness yourself and then keep you from it? 
ultimately he presents this seed of doubt, right? Did God really say that you're not allowed to eat the fruit of this tree? Why not become like him? In a way, think about it, Eve doesn't even know what she's missing until the serpent tells her what she's missing out on. You can do this, he implies, so why wouldn't you? In Colossians 2, we find Paul writing to this church, a group of, of people, a group of churches, really, that are in danger of being deceived by people around them. Being deceived with this very thought. What you have is not enough. You're actually missing out. The thing that you really need, you don't have it. These people to whom Paul is writing are in danger of being deceived that Jesus is not enough. That there are things they're missing out on that they are not complete. Three simple things we'll find in these verses today. We're really going to focus uh, on verses 8, 9, and 10. But three simple things we're going to find. One in each of the verses, and these are the things. Number one, Paul describes this. The world is full of empty promises. If you just get this, if you just have this, if you just lived here, if you just owned that, if you were just with this person, you'd be complete, you'd be full, everything would be okay. But the world is full of empty promises. Second, Christ is fully God. Christ is fully God. And you may say, well, that seems like a deviation. That doesn't really connect to the previous thing, but it does when you recognize this. You are full, in other words, complete in him, in Jesus. You are full, you are complete in Jesus. Today, I think there are a number of us that sit in this room as brothers and sisters that would say, yeah, I know that. I know that. But this is my prayer and my earnest hope that by the end of our time today, and you come to this table and you taste and see that the Lord is good, but that you, it's not just something that you know that registers up here, but you believe it. That you are actually full in Jesus Christ. This is Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. We're going to read through verse 10. God's word says this. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. An empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. This is the word of the Lord to which we say together, thanks be to God. One of the first things that, that Paul establishes here is that the world is full of empty promises. You look back into verse 8, and he uses these words. That there is a philosophy and an empty deceit that seeks to take people captive. That seeks to take people captive. You think about being captured, and even that language and that idea, it seems militant. It seems very physical. There's not really a subversive element to it. It seems very dramatic. Like, to be captured 
is to actually be physically taken. But I want you to notice the language that Paul uses as he describes this idea of being held captive. He says it starts in so many ways. This deceit is with philosophy. It's not this giant physical action of oppression that comes. It's actually this insidious thing, this subversive thing, this thing that makes you think something is one way when it's actually another. What Paul's doing in this moment is he's saying, be aware, see that no one captures you, puts you in this harmful place, takes you from a place where you're intended to be and removes you and takes you and puts you somewhere else, but they do it through philosophy and deception. Notice that he says it's not just deception, but it's empty deception. In so many ways, he's writing to a group of people that are hearing from those around them. There's these things that are creeping into the church that are saying, you can have Jesus, but if you're not following these rituals, if you're not a part of these festivals, if you, in, in this time in, in the Greco-Roman world and in this culture, there were all these festivals, there were all these things, there were all these kind of ancillary things that were a part of or adjacent to the Christian faith. And there are folks that are saying, if you don't do these things, it's not enough. Yeah, have Jesus, but also perform the ritual. Also do the act. Also do the other thing. That's what it specifically looked like for the Colossian church. For you and I, and the world in which we live, the principle is very similar. The context is just a little different. There are people around us I would venture to say that within most churches, even our own, there are people oftentimes within us that are trying to deceive us and cause us to see, or believe rather, that Christ is not enough. That there is more to this life, even by way of good things, moral obedience, following the rules, Doing the right stuff. You got, have Jesus, have the grace, have the mercy. Yeah, his mercy is more, but what if it's not enough? What are you doing to safeguard your place? Jesus saved you, but are you, are you staying there? Are you still in it? Paul says that these are lies. And that the world around us, even in what we often consider to be the safest places, is seeking to attack us and deceive us and cause us to believe that we would need something more than Christ crucified and resurrected. Something more. Why does Paul remind them of this? Because in so many ways you hear these words and you say, that sounds nuts. Why would I believe that? Why would I think that that's possible? Quite frankly, how could I fall into that trap? With Paul sharing this with them, he's reminding them that perhaps they're not as strong as they think. And the Spirit is reminding us that we're in the same place, that we're weak, that we need humility because we are able to be tempted. We're able to be tempted. There are those of you this morning that I identify with in this way. There are some of you that sit here and you smile and you look beautiful and you're great. 
and there's so much pain in your heart. Like so much deep pain. For yesterday's sin, last week's broken promises, the thing that you can't shake, like you just can't shake it. And the thought is in your head, I don't know if I'm ever going to be okay. Ever. Don't be deceived by the lies that the enemy attacks you with. Don't be deceived by the lies that the world tells you, that who you are and where you've been and what you've done has caused you to be in a place where you need more than Jesus. Because he is enough. Second, not only does, does Paul say that this world is full of empty promises, he also says that Christ is fully God. Look at verse 9. It is a very short sentence. But the amount of, of, of profound truth in this is astounding. He says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, what does that mean? What is Paul saying? Why is this bolstering his point that, that Christ is all that we need and we have everything that we need in him? I want you to think about the fact that Jesus came and took on flesh. Jesus came and took on flesh. This is how John's gospel describes it. And you, you know this. Hear this. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we, we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. Even that one moment that, that Paxson drew us to this morning, this idea of God's omniscience, his all-knowing. That he knows everything. Everything that you and I have ever done. Who we are to the core more than we could ever imagine. And he still loves us. He still loves us. You may say, well, what, what does that love look like? What is that kind of love? This is the kind of love that it is. That the creator becomes the created. Think about this. John's Gospel would describe, Colossians 1 would describe, if you look just on the other page, if you have a Bible open before you, look at chapter 1, verses 15 and on and read these things. The image of the invisible God, this is who Jesus is. And nothing was made apart from him. He is creator. And yet he takes on flesh. The creator takes on the flesh of the created. And he does so in this way, not partially, but fully. That in itself is astounding. But more so that the fullness of deity, that all that God is in his glory, in his power, in his might, in his love, in his goodness, in his mercy, in his grace, in his peace, all of that dwelt in the same kind of flesh that you and I walk around in and yet without sin. There are a lot of religions out there. There are a lot of things that we could believe in or that we could follow. 
there are two things that are radically distinctive about Christianity. Number one, in every other religion in the world, you and I are essentially meant to approach God. We're meant to go to him. We're meant to go find a place of peace. We're meant to work toward God. Jesus is God that has come to you and me. He's come to you and me. But I want to share this with you because it's even more beautiful and I can't comprehend it and we can't understand this, but it's not just that he came to us, that he became like us to save us. He took on your flesh and my flesh so that we might be redeemed. He gave us all of himself, and you know what we gave him? Just our sin. And you know what we get? His righteousness. That's what Christ has done for us. The fullness of God dwelled in Jesus. And look at what Paul says in verse 10. Not only is the world full of empty promises, our hope is that Christ is fully God, but look at verse 10. You're full in him. Verse 10 says, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. The head of all rule and authority. What if you really believed that you had everything? Like absolutely everything. I think I had a moment when I was a child when I met somebody who had everything. I remember like being pretty young. Christmas is approaching, and I'm at that age at this point where I don't have the money to like buy, you know, you're like buying bad gifts for mom and dad with their own money, uh, which is still sweet and endearing. Um, maybe just tell the kids to give me a gift card this year, okay? Um, got enough socks, but. I was at that age where I didn't have, you know, and it was beyond the age where I'm kind of making a craft or, or something like that. But I remember thinking through, man, I, I want to get my dad something for Christmas. What do I get him for Christmas? And I asked him, what, you know, what do I get you for Christmas? I don't want to be accurate here because I, I don't know exactly what he said, but to, to my best, the best of my recollection, I can remember him saying something akin to the fact that either I don't need anything or I have everything. Remember that? Your parents would say stuff like that to you? And you're like, well, I don't think you've seen Nintendo 64, right? <laughs> you know? I don't, think if you, I don't think you know what fun is. <laughs> now I'm a parent, and I can have that same answer if my kid asked me that question, right? Because I, I, you know, Christmas morning for grown-ups now is is more fun than it could ever be for a kid. Because you just look around and you just watch, and you look. And I think for most of us, we probably sit there on a morning like Christmas, and you sit with family and you look at your children. And, and it is kind of one of those hallmark life moments where you're like, I have everything. And in those moments, no one could convince you otherwise. 
It is not my job this morning to convince you. But I do want to implore you. I do want to persuade you. I'm not going to flash it on a screen every five seconds for three milliseconds, right? But do you know that you have everything in Jesus? And I mean everything. Absolutely everything. This is how Peter describes it. Look at 2 Peter chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of its sinful desire. You may say, well, look, that's, that's really verbose, and that's, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of words. What does all that mean? Well, number one, Peter's saying the promises that are in Jesus are vastly different than the promises of the world. They're true. They're not empty deceit. Second, look at this. His divine power has granted to us all things. Do you know that you're not without? You're not without. This is where Jesus uses this phrase with his disciples and he talks to those people he loves. And he says, you have not because you ask not. And he's not talking about a brand new car. All right? But he's saying that everything that you need is in him. And you have access to it. I think so often what we think it means to, to have everything is to get more things. But the essence of the Christian life isn't about getting more things or graduating to the next level. It's about discovering what's already there. It's about finding out what God has already done in us through his spirit. What he's already accomplished for us. It's about believing and understanding and recognizing that his mercy is more. It's not finding a different avenue for more mercy. It's about seeing how merciful he actually is. Those are vastly different things. The Christian life is about discovering what God has already given us. He's given us everything. Paul describes it in this way in Romans chapter 6. This is Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 11. It says this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died... He died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. There's all this in language. We're in him. We're complete. We're full in him. Why? 
Because everything that Jesus has, you have. Can you imagine the ramifications of this? We were buried, therefore, with him. When you trusted Christ, the old you, your old self, was buried with him. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We, we sing this song, we sang it this morning. You called my name and I ran out of that grave. Do you know how you ran out of that grave? Because you were in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, you've trusted in Jesus, if you've repented of your sins and believed the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection as your salvation, when Jesus walked out of that grave, so did you. So did you. That is reality. You are in him. You have union with him. Everything that he has is yours. This is where life comes from. And if we believe that, then no commercial this world offers us will be of any use. Because we'll recognize, I don't need anything. I've got everything in Jesus. I want to read you, uh, as we draw near to communion this morning and a time of prayer together, I want to read you an excerpt from a letter, um, this missionary. His name is Hudson Taylor. Uh, he wrote to his sister. And I don't know about you, but there are... Um, I think there are these moments where you're like, man, I want that. I really want to believe that. I really want that to be true. But you might not believe it. You might not spiritually see it. You read the words, you've heard the words, but maybe they don't make sense to your heart like you think they should. I want to read you this excerpt um, from his letter to his sister. He writes this in October, uh, or October 17th of 1869. And this is what he says. He says, I felt the ingratitude, the danger, the sin of not living near to God. I prayed and I agonized and I fasted and I strove and I made resolutions and I read God's word more diligently and I sought more time for retirement and, med uh, and meditation, but all of it was without effect. Every day, almost every hour, the consciousness of sin oppressed me. I knew that if I could only abide in Christ, all would be well, but I could not. I began the day with prayer, determined not to take my eye off him for a moment. You ever started your day that way? Then this happens. He says, but the pressure of duties, constant interruptions, caused me to forget him. Every day brought its own register, its own list of sin and failure, of lack of power. The will was there, but how to figure it out, how to perform it, I could not. He said, I felt there was nothing I so much desired in this world, nothing so much I needed, 
but it was so far from any measure of attaining it. And I pursued and I strove after it. And the more I did it, the more it eluded my grasp till hope almost ran out. And then he says this. All the time I felt assured that there was in Christ all that I needed. But the practical question was how to get it out. Everything's there in Jesus, he says, but how do I get it out? How does it work for me? He says this. Christ was rich, but I was poor. He was strong, but I was weak. I knew full well that there was in the root, in the stem, abundant fatness. But how to get it into my puny little branch was the question. As gradually the light was dawning on me, I saw that faith was the only prerequisite. But I had not this faith. I strove for it, but it wouldn't come. I tried to exercise it, but it was in vain. I prayed for faith, but it came not. What was I supposed to do? And he talks about a friend who shared this one little phrase with him that changed everything. God illuminated his mind and heart through it and said this. But how to get faith strengthened? Not by striving after faith, but by resting on the faithful one. He said after he heard this, after he read this, he saw everything. I don't want to strive anymore. I don't have to strive anymore because he promised never to leave me, never to forsake me, and he never will. And as he writes, you can feel and sense the change in him. This is what he says. This was not all he showed me, not one half. I thought about the vine and the branches and what light the Spirit poured directly into my soul. How great my mistake seemed in having wished to get the sap to try to pull the fullness out of him. I saw not only that Jesus would never leave me, but that I was a member of his body, of his flesh, of his bones. The vine now I see is not the root merely, but all of it. Root, stem, branches, twigs, leaves, flowers, fruit. And Jesus is not only that. He's soil, he's sunshine, he's air, he showers 10,000 times more than anything I could have ever dreamed or wished for or needed. He says it's a wonderful thing to really be one. To be a member of Christ. To be unified with him. He said, think about what it involves. Can Christ be rich and I be poor? How can that be? Can your right hand be rich and your left hand be poor? Can your head be fed well while your body starves? No. This is the sweetest part, is the rest with which full identification with Christ brings. He says, I'm no longer anxious about anything. And it doesn't matter where he places me or how. That's for him to consider, not me. Because in the easiest positions, he must give me his grace. And in the most difficult situation, his grace is sufficient. His resources are mine because he is mine. And he's with me and he dwells in me. You know what he's saying? He's saying if you're in Christ, 
And I don't mean the proverbial you. I mean you. Like the actual you. If you are in Christ. I'm a feeler, so I get it. I don't feel like I'm in him a lot of days. That doesn't make any less true. I am in him. And you are in him. So I don't know what you came in here with this morning. You might have come to this place and say, you know what, I got a a lot of deep needs. Like There's just stuff in my life that's just not great. There's points of pain financially. There's points of pain emotionally. There's points of pain spiritually. You might say, look, I'm that guy. That guy lived 150 years ago. But I feel like him. I feel like I'm trying to get to God, and I can't find him. Where is he? He's there. He's already there. If you are in him, quit running after and trying to figure out how to get to him and get this stuff out of him. You already have it. You are in him. I'm going to ask Brian and and, uh, Ben to come help me this morning. We're going to take the opportunity to serve communion together. When you come to this table this morning, it's just kind of this like this like beautiful paradox of sorts, right? Like this, I mean, we call it a meal because it is a meal. And I've had several children tell me before that this does not qualify as a meal. (laughs) I can sympathize. You might say, well, how can I have everything in Jesus? I don't feel that. I don't sense that. I've never seen a better picture that's... And something that looks like hardly anything is absolutely everything. Absolutely everything. This is the proof that you're in him. This is Christ's body given for you. His blood shed for you. For the remission, the very forgiveness of your sins so that you and I could sing and say together, my sins, they are many. But his mercy is more. Amen? Let's read these words together. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. Paul writes to the Corinthian church as he institutes the supper into that context. And this is what he says. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, he also took the cup after saying, after supper rather, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This morning, I want to invite you to this table. If you are in Christ, come experience, come taste and see God's goodness and recognize this. That if you are in him, his fullness of joy and life is in you. There's deep hope there. I want you to come to this table this morning rejoicing. We're going to take a moment to, to pray together in a moment, but I've had so many moments in my life where I've come to this table, and quite frankly, it wasn't a moment of joy. It was a moment of maybe helpful things to some degree, penitence, confession. Those things are appropriate, absolutely. But you don't come to a table despite what you think you lack. Because everything you have is from Jesus. You don't come to this table to atone for anything. That's what the table is. He's done it for you. If you've trusted in Christ Jesus, I would urge you to come to this table this morning. If you have not trusted in Jesus... This would be my urge to you. I would challenge you. But more than that, I would just beg you. I would ask you to see and recognize your sin, to ask God for forgiveness, and to believe in Jesus who came and took your place so that you could have life in him. Let's take a moment and let's pray together and let's approach the table with joy. Heavenly Father, God, would you cause us not to be deceived by what the world says we need? Father, would you cause us to see your son Jesus as all we need? And Father, would you cause us to remember that all that you have, all that is in your son Jesus is ours. We can come to you for the mercy for the forgiveness, for the comfort, for the encouragement, for the joy, for the peace that we need. Because in you, we have everything. Father, you've given us everything in Christ. In this moment, if you bring us to this table with one another, rejoicing. In Jesus' name, amen. I would encourage you to come to one of these three tables and come taste and see that the Lord is good. I will tell you, um, this is a table of joy. <laughs> I would encourage you to come. Uh, I, look, I, I don't really eat dinner alone. I know most of you don't either. We do it with friends. We do it with, with family. We do it with people we love. And we are God's family, and we should do it together. So I would encourage you in this way. Don't come to this table by yourself. Come to this table with someone and celebrate the goodness of what God has done for all of us in Christ. When you're ready, come and eat.